93 by Victor Hugo, Part 3, Book 7, Chapters 1 to 3. A lamp had been set on the floor of the cell, beside the air hole. The loaf of bread, the jug of water, and the bundle of straw were also on the floor. Since the cell had been cut out of solid rock, any prisoner who might have conceived the idea of setting fire to the straw would have been wasting his time. There was no chance that the prison would catch fire, and the prisoner would be sure to suffocate. When the door turned on its hinges, the Marquis was pacing the floor of his cell, mechanically walking back and forth like all caged animals. At the sound made by the opening, then the closing of the door, he raised his head. The lamp, which was on the floor between the Marquis and Gauvin, shone on the faces of the two men. They looked at each other, and this look was such that they both stood motionless. The Marquis laughed and cried out, Good evening, monsieur. It's been quite a few years since I had the good fortune of seeing you. I thank you for doing me the favor of coming to pay me a visit. I'll be glad to talk a little. I was beginning to be bored. Your friends are wasting time. Proofs of identity, a court martial, those formalities are long and tedious. I'd get things done much more quickly. This is my home now. Please come in. Well, what do you think of what's been happening? Odd, isn't it? Once upon a time there was a king and a queen. The king was the king, and the queen was France. The king's head was cut off, and the queen was married to Robespierre. The queen and Robespierre have had a daughter known as the Guillotine, with whom it seems I'm going to become acquainted tomorrow morning. I'll be delighted, just as I'm delighted to see you. Is that why you've come? Have you been promoted? Are you the executioner now? If this is merely a friendly visit, however, I'm deeply touched. Vicomte, you may have forgotten what a nobleman is like. Well, here's one for you to examine. Look at me. I'm a strange specimen. I believe in God, tradition, the family, my ancestors, my father's example, faithfulness, loyalty, duty toward one's sovereign, respect for old laws, virtue, and justice. And I'd gladly have you shot. Please be so kind as to sit down. You'll have to sit on the floor, of course, because there are no chairs in this drawing room. But a man who lives in mud shouldn't mind sitting on the floor. I don't say that to offend you, because what we call mud, you call the nation. You won't demand that I shout, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, will you? This is an old room in my house. In the past, lords put commoners in it. Now, commoners put lords in it. Such foolishness is called a revolution. It seems that my head is going to be cut off thirty-six hours from now. I have no objection to that. However, if my captors had been polite, they'd have sent me my snuff-box, which is upstairs in the mirror room, where you played when you were a child, and where I used to bounce you on my knee. Monsieur, I'm going to tell you something. Your name is Gauvin, and strangely enough, you have noble blood in your veins, the same blood as mine, in fact, and the blood that makes me a man of honor makes you a rascal.
Such are circumstances. You may tell me it's not your fault. It's not mine either. A man may be an evildoer without knowing it. It comes from the air he breathes. In times like these, no one is responsible for what he does. The revolution is guilty for everyone, and all your great criminals are innocent as lambs. What fools! And you most of all. Allow me to admire you. Yes, I admire a young man like you who's a nobleman, well placed in the state, with great blood to shed for great causes, vicomte of this Tour Gauvin, prince of Brittany, able to be a duke by right and a peer of France by heritage. In short, who's nearly everything a sensible man could want to be in this world. And yet, who takes it into his head, being what he is, to be what you are, so that his enemies regard him as a scoundrel and his friends as an imbecile. By the way, give the Abbe Simordan my congratulations. The Marquis spoke at ease, calmly, without stressing anything in his well-bred voice, with his clear, tranquil eyes, keeping his hands in his vest pockets. He paused, drew a long breath, and continued. I won't hide from you the fact that I've done my best to kill you. I myself have personally pointed a cannon at you three times. That's discourteous behavior, I admit. But it would be basing yourself on a false maxim to suppose that in war the enemy is trying to make himself agreeable to you. For we're at war, nephew. Everything is being put to fire and the sword. It's true that the king has been killed. What a wonderful time we're living in. He paused again, then went on. When I think that none of this would have happened if Voltaire had been hanged and Rousseau imprisoned. Ah, intellectuals, what a scourge. Tell me, what have you got against that monarchy? It's true that the Abbe Pucel was sent to his Abbey of Corbigny in a carriage of his own choosing, with permission to take as long as he pleased for the journey. And as for your Monsieur Titon, who, begging your pardon, had been a great debauchee, and who used to visit prostitutes before going to see Deacon Paris's miracles, he was transferred from the Chateau de Vincennes to the Chateau des Hommes in Picardy, which is, I confess, a rather ugly place. Those are the grievances. I remember them because I too shouted in my day, I was as stupid as you. The Marquis felt in his pocket, as though trying to find his snuff-box. But not as malicious, he continued. We only talked for the sake of talking. There was also the mutiny of the Chamber of Inquiries and Petitions, and then the philosophers came along. Writings were burned instead of their authors. Court intrigues became involved. There were all those simpletons, Turgot, Quenet, Malherbe, the physiocrats, and so on. And then the trouble started. It all came from scribblers and rhymesters. The Encyclopedia, Diderot, D'Alembert, oh, what malicious scoundrels! And to think that a well-born man like the King of Prussia was taken in by them. I'd have eliminated all those paper-scratchers. Ah, our family knew how to mete out justice. 
You can still see the marks of the quartering wheel on the wall here. We didn't jest. No, there shouldn't be any scribblers. As long as there are arouettes, there will be marats. As long as there are fools who write, there will be rascals who murder. As long as there is ink, there will be black stains. As long as a man's hand holds a goose's feather, frivolous foolishness will engender atrocious foolishness. Books cause crimes. The word chimera has two meanings. It can mean either dream or monster. So many people are willing to content themselves with nonsense. What are you talking about with your rights? The rights of man, the rights of the people. It's all so hollow, so stupid, so imaginary, so meaningless. But when I say Avoise, sister of Conan II, brought the county of Brittany to Oel, count of Nantes and Cornouaille, who left the throne to Alain Ferjean, uncle of Berth, who married Alain the Black, lord of Roche-sur-Yon, and bore him Conan the Small, grandfather of Guy or Gauvin de Tuart, our ancestor, I'm saying something clear, and that's a real right. But what do your louts and rascals mean when they talk about their rights? Deicide and regicide. How hideous! Oh, the scoundrels! I'm sorry for your sake, monsieur. You have that proud Breton blood in your veins. You and I are both descended from Gauvin de Tuart, and also from the great Duc de Montbazon, who was a peer of France, and was honored with the collar of various orders, who attacked the outskirts of Tours, and was wounded in the Battle of Arc, and who died master of the royal hunt in his house of Cousier in Touraine, at the age of eighty-six. I could also tell you about the Duc de Ladenois, son of the Lady of La Garnache, and Claude de Lorraine, Duc de Chevreuse, and Henri de Lenincourt, and Françoise de la Valbois-Dauphin, but what would be the use of mentioning them? You have the honor of being an idiot, and you insist on being the equal of my stable-boy. Don't forget that I was already an old man when you were a baby. I used to scold you then, and I'll do it again. In growing up, you've somehow managed to become smaller. Since the last time we saw each other, each of us has gone his own way. I've continued to follow integrity. You've gone in the opposite direction. I don't know how all this will end, but I do know that your friends are contemptible wretches. Ah, you've made brilliant progress. There's no denying it. In the army, you've eliminated the punishment of a pint of water inflicted on a drunken soldier for three consecutive days. You have maximum prices, the convention, Bishop Gobel, Monsieur Chomet, and Monsieur Hébert, and you've wiped out the whole past from the Bastille to the peerage list. You've replaced the saints with vegetables. So be it, citizens. Take control. Reign. Do as you please. Stop at nothing. All that won't change the fact that religion is religion, that royalty has filled fifteen hundred years of our history, and that the old French nobility, even decapitated, is higher than you. As for your quibbling over the historical rights of royal families, 
we merely shrug our shoulders. Chilperic was only a monk named Daniel. It was Ranfois who invented Chilperic to annoy Charles Martel. We know those things as well as you do. That's not the question. The question is this. To be a great kingdom, to be old France, to be that magnificently ordered country in which one considered first the sacred persons of the monarchs, absolute lords of the state, then the princes, then the officers of the crown for the armies on land and sea, for the artillery, for the direction and superintendence of finances. Then came the sovereign and the subordinate officers of justice, followed by the management of the salt tax and the general revenue, and finally the police of the kingdom in its three orders. It was all admirable and nobly regulated. You've destroyed it. You've destroyed the provinces, like the pitiful ignoramuses that you are, without having any idea of what the provinces were. The spirit of France is composed of the spirit of the whole continent, and each French province represented one of the virtues of Europe. The candor of Germany was in Picardy, the magnanimity of Sweden in Champagne, the industriousness of Holland in Burgundy, the liveliness of Poland in Languedoc, the gravity of Spain in Gascony, the wisdom of Italy in Provence, the subtlety of Greece in Normandy, the faithfulness of Switzerland in Dauphiné. You knew nothing of all that. You've broken, shattered, smashed, and demolished, and you've calmly been brute beasts. So you don't want any more noblemen? Well, you won't have any more. There's no hope of it now. You'll have no more knights, no more heroes. You can say good-bye to all the ancient grandeur. Find me a Dassas now. You're all afraid for your lives. You won't have any more Chevalier de Fontenoy, who saluted before killing. You won't have any more of those fighters in silk stockings at the siege of Lerida. You won't have any more of those proud military days when the plumes passed like meteors. You're finished as a nation. You'll undergo the rape of invasion. If Alaric II returns, he won't find himself confronted by Clovis. If Abderam returns, he won't find Charles Martel. If the Saxons returned, they won't find Pepin. You'll have no Agnadel, Roqua, Lens, Staffard, Neuwind, Steinkirk, La Marseille, Roku, Lawfeld, or Mayon. You won't have Marignan with Francis I. You won't have Bouvines with Philip Augustus, taking prisoner with one hand Renaud, Count of Boulogne, and with the other Ferrand, Count of Flanders. You'll have Agincourt, but you won't have the Sieur de Bacqueville, the great standard-bearer, going to his death, wrapped in his flag. Go on, be new men, become little. The Marquis was silent for a moment, then he said, but leave us great. Kill the kings, kill the noblemen, kill the priests, tear down, destroy, massacre, trample everything underfoot, 
Put the ancient maxims under the heels of your boots. Stamp on the throne and the altar. Crush God. Dance on him. It's your affair. You're traitors and cowards, incapable of devotion and self-sacrifice. There, I've spoken. Now have me guillotined, Vicomte. I have the honor to be your humble servant. And he added, Ah, I've been telling you some hard truths. What difference does it make to me? I'm dead. You're free, said Gauvin. And he stepped up to the Marquis, unfastened his commander's cloak, threw it over Lantanac's shoulders, and pulled the hood down over his eyes. They were both of the same height. "'What are you doing?' said the Marquis. Gauvin called out loudly, "'Lieutenant, open the door for me.' The door opened. "'Be sure to lock the door behind me,' cried Gauvin. And he pushed the stupefied Marquis out of his cell. The room on the ground floor, transformed into a guard room, was lighted, it will be remembered, by a horn lantern, which made everything appear indistinct and gave more darkness than light. In that dim light, the soldiers, who were not asleep, saw a tall man walk past them toward the door, wearing the cloak and braided hood of a commander-in-chief. They saluted him as he passed. The Marquis slowly crossed the guardroom, went through the breach, not without bumping his head several times, and stepped outside. Thinking he was seeing Gauvin, the sentry presented arms. When he was outside, treading on the grass of the fields, two hundred paces from the forest, with space, the night, freedom, and life before him. The Marquis stopped and stood still for a moment, like a man who has let himself be led, who has yielded to surprise, and who, having taken advantage of an open door, seeks to decide whether he has acted rightly or wrongly, hesitates before going any further, and gives audience to one last thought. After several seconds of attentive reflection, he raised his right hand, snapped his fingers, and said, After all, why not? And he walked away. The door of the cell had been closed. Gauvin was inside. In those days, everything about a court-martial was more or less discretionary. Dumas, in the Legislative Assembly, had set forth a rough plan of military legislation, later worked over by Tallow in the Council of Five Hundred, but the definitive code for court-martials was drawn up only under the Empire. Incidentally, the law requiring military tribunals to receive votes beginning with the lowest rank also dates from the Empire. During the Revolution, this law did not exist. In 1793, the presiding judge of a military tribunal was almost the whole tribunal in himself. He chose the members, arranged the order of ranks, and established the manner of voting. He was the master as well as the judge. Simordan had decided that the court-martial would be held in that same ground-floor room where the rhetoric had been, and which was now a guard-room. He wanted to shorten everything the distance from the prison to the court, and from the court to the scaffold. 
At noon, in accordance with his orders, the court was assembled, with the following display of pomp. Three straw-bottomed chairs, a pine table, two lighted candles, and a stool in front of the table. The chairs were for the judges, the stool for the accused. There was also a stool at either end of the table, one for the prosecutor, who was a quartermaster, and the other for the court clerk, who was a corporal. On the table were a stick of red sealing wax, a brass seal of the Republic, two inkstands, some sheets of white paper, and two printed posters lying open, one containing the Declaration of Outlawry, the other the Decree of the Convention. Behind the middle chair was a cluster of tricolored flags. In those days of rough simplicity, a setting was quickly arranged, and it took little time to change a guard room into a court of justice. The middle chair, intended for the presiding judge, faced the door of the dungeon. The audience was composed of soldiers. Two gendarmes guarded the stool of the accused. Simordan sat on the middle chair, with Captain Gachamp, the first judge, on his right, and Sergeant Radoub, the second judge, on his left. He wore a hat with a tricolored plume. His saber hung at his side, and his two pistols were in his belt. His bright red scar added to his fierce appearance. Radoub had finally allowed his wounds to be dressed. Around his head was a handkerchief on which a bloodstain was slowly widening. At noon the session had not yet begun. A courier, whose horse could be heard pawing the ground outside, was standing near the table of the tribunal. Simordan was writing. He was writing this. Citizen members of the Committee of Public Safety, Lantanac has been captured and will be executed tomorrow. He wrote the date, signed his name, folded and sealed the dispatch, and handed it to the courier, who left. Having done this, Simordan said loudly, Open the cell. The two gendarmes drew back the bolts, opened the cell, and went into it. Simordan raised his head, folded his arms, looked at the door, and called out, Bring in the prisoner. A man appeared in the doorway between the two gendarmes. It was Gauvin. Simordan started. Gauvin, he cried. Then he said, I asked for the prisoner. I'm the prisoner, said Gauvin. You? Yes. And Lantanac? He's free. Free? Yes. Escaped? Yes. Simordan stammered, trembling. After all, this is his castle. He knows all its exits. The dungeon may be connected with some passage to the outside. I should have thought of that. He must have found a way to escape. He wouldn't have needed anyone's help. He was helped, said Gauvin. Helped to escape? Yes. Who helped him? I did. You? Yes. You must be dreaming. I went into his cell. I was alone with him. I took off my cloak, 
put it on him, and pulled the hood down over his face. He went out, and I stayed in his place. Here I am. You didn't do that. I did. It's impossible. It's true. Bring me Lantanac. He's no longer here. When the soldiers saw my cloak, they mistook him for me and let him pass. It was still dark. You're mad. I'm stating what happened. There was a silence. Simordan stammered. Then you deserve... Death, said Govan. Simordan was as pale as a severed head. He was motionless, like a man who has just been struck by lightning. He seemed to have stopped breathing. A big drop of sweat rolled down his forehead. Gendarmes, he said, steadying his voice, seat the accused. Govan sat down on the stool. Gendarmes, draw your sabers, said Simordan. This was the command always given when there was the possibility of a death sentence. The gendarmes drew their sabers. Simordan's voice had resumed its ordinary tone. Prisoner, you will rise, he said to Govan. He no longer used the familiar form of address. Govan stood up. What is your name? asked Simordan. Govan. Simordan continued the interrogatory. Who are you? I'm commander-in-chief of the expeditionary force of Côte du Nord. Are you related to the escaped prisoner? I'm his grandnephew. Do you know the decree of the convention? I see the poster lying on your table. What have you to say about that decree? That I countersigned it, that I ordered its execution, and that I'm responsible for the printing of that poster at the bottom of which my name appears. Choose your counsel. I'll handle my own defense. You may speak now. Simordan had become impassive again, but his impassivity was less like the calm of a man than the tranquility of a rock. Govan remained silent for a moment, apparently meditating. "'What have you to say in your defense?' asked Simordan. Govan slowly raised his head without looking at anyone, and replied, "'This. One thing prevented me from seeing another. One good deed, seen from too close, hid a hundred criminal acts from me. On one side an old man, on the other three children.' All those things came between me and my duty. I forgot the burned villages, the ravaged fields, the prisoners who were massacred, the wounded men who were killed, the women who were shot. I forgot France betrayed to England. I freed the murderer of our country. I'm guilty. In speaking thus, I seem to be speaking against myself. I'm not. I'm speaking in favor of myself. When a guilty man acknowledges his guilt, he saves the only thing worth saving. 
honor. Is that all you have to say in your own defense? asked Simordan. I'll add only that since I was the commander, it was my duty to set an example, and that since you're now judges, you have the same duty. What example would you request? My death. Do you find it just? Yes, and necessary. Be seated. The quartermaster, who was serving as the prosecutor, stood up and read first the order declaring the former Marquis de Lantanac to be an outlaw, then the decree of the convention ordaining the death penalty against anyone who aided the escape of a rebel prisoner. He ended by reading the lines printed at the bottom of the poster, forbidding anyone, under penalty of death, to give aid and succor to the above-named rebel, and signed, Commander-in-Chief of the Expeditionary Force, Govan. After reading these lines, the prosecutor sat down. Simordan folded his arms and said, Prisoner, pay attention. Audience, listen, look, and be silent. You have before you the law. The votes will now be taken. Sentence will be passed according to the decision of the majority. Each judge will state his verdict aloud in the presence of the accused, for justice has nothing to hide. The first judge will now announce his verdict. Speak, Captain Gaychamp. Captain Gaychamp seemed to see neither Simordan nor Gauvin. His lowered eyelids concealed his eyes, which were staring at the poster as though it were an abyss. The law is precise, he said. A judge is more and less than a man. He is less than a man because he has no heart. He is more than a man because he has the sword of justice. In the year 414 of Rome, Manlius had his son put to death for the crime of having conquered without his orders. Violated discipline demanded an expiation. In this case, it is the law that has been violated, and the law is higher than discipline. As the result of a surge of pity, our country has been placed in danger. Pity can sometimes be a crime. Major Govan enabled the rebel Lantanac to escape. Govan is guilty. I vote for the death sentence. Right, clerk said Simordan. The clerk wrote, Captain Gaychamp, death. Gaychamp, said Gauvin, you voted well, and I thank you. The second judge will now announce his verdict, said Simordan. Speak, Sergeant Radoub. Radoub stood up, turned to Gauvin, and saluted him. Then he cried out, if that's how things are, then guillotine me, because I give you my sacred word of honor that I wish I'd done first what the old man did, and then what Major Govan did. When I saw that eighty-year-old man walk into the fire to save three children, I said, My friend, you're a brave man. And when I heard that Major Govan had saved him from your stupid guillotine, I said, Major, you ought to be a general, 
and I'd give you the cross of St. Louis if there were still crosses and saints and Louis. Are we going to be idiots now? If it was for things like this that we won the Battle of Jemap, the Battle of Valmy, the Battle of Fleureux, and the Battle of Watigny, then I want to hear about it. What? Major Gauvin has been keeping those block-headed royalists on the run for the past four months. He's been saving the Republic with his saber. He won that victory at Dole, where he showed that he had a lot of brains. And when you have a man like that, you try not to have him any more? Instead of making him a general, you want to cut off his head? It's enough to make a man jump off the Pont Neuf head first. And you, Citizen Gauvin, if you were a corporal instead of a major, I'd tell you that you were talking nonsense a little while ago. The old man was right to save the children. You were right to save him. And if people are going to be guillotined now for doing the right thing, I'll be damned if I know what's going on. Where will it all end? It's not true, is it? I feel like pinching myself to see if I'm awake. I don't understand. Should the old man have let the children be burned alive? Should Major Gauvin have let the old man's head be cut off? Cut mine off. I'd just as soon you did. Suppose the children had died. The Red Bonnet Battalion would have been dishonored. Is that what you wanted? Then we might as well eat each other up. I understand politics as well as any of you. I belonged to the club of the Section de Pique. We're starting to get stupid. I'll sum up my way of looking at this. I don't like things that have the disadvantage of making you not know where you stand. Why the hell are we getting ourselves killed? So our leader can be killed? No, sir. I want my leader. I need him. I like him more today than I did yesterday. Send him to the guillotine? Don't make me laugh. We won't have it. I've listened, but I don't care what anyone says. It's not possible. Radoub sat down. His wound had opened again. A thin stream of blood came from under his bandage and ran down his neck from the place where his ear had been. Simordan turned to him and said, Do you vote that the accused be acquitted? I vote that he be made a general, said Radoub. I'm asking if you vote that he be acquitted. I vote that he be made head of the Republic. Sergeant Radoub, do you vote for Major Govan's acquittal or not? I vote that I be executed in his place. Acquittal, said Simordan. Write it down, clerk. The clerk wrote, Sergeant Radoub, acquittal. Then he said, one vote for death, one vote for acquittal. A tie. It was Simordan's turn to vote. He stood up. He took off his hat and put it on the table. He was no longer pale or livid. His face was the color of earth. The silence would not have been deeper if everyone present had been lying in a tomb. Simordan slowly said in a solemn, firm voice, Accused, the case has been heard. In the name of the Republic, 
by a majority of two votes to one. The court-martial... He stopped short and paused. Was he hesitating before death? Was he hesitating before life? Everyone held his breath. Simordan continued. Sentences you to death. His face expressed the torment of a sinister triumph. When Jacob had himself blessed by the angel he had overcome in the darkness, he must have had that fearful smile. It was only a gleam, and it quickly passed. Simordan again became a man of stone. He sat down, put on his hat, and added, "'Govan, you will be executed tomorrow at sunrise.' Govan stood up, saluted, and said, "'I thank the court.' "'Take the condemned man away,' said Simordan. He made a sign. The door of the dungeon was opened. Govan went inside, and the door was closed again. The two gendarmes stood guard on either side of it, with their sabers drawn. Sergeant Radoub, who had just fainted, was carried out of the room.' 